Okay. Thank you all for coming today. We know you have a lot of choices, so we appreciate you coming to our panel today. So thank you. Um, I am still waiting for, oh, there's my, there. <laughs> hello, that's my third panelist, Shirley. Thank you. No problem, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. So oh. we'll be doing it. So again, thank you all for coming. We're all set, ready to go. Um, today we're going to be presenting Not For Sale, Preserving and Sharing a Community a Collection. Um, many of you may, have, may know about this auction. It was uh, going to be held in 2015. It was contested by the community. It was uh, with Rago Collections, which is located in New Jersey. Um, and it's a pleasure for us to bring you many of the different aspects of the, what occurred and what is still occurring. Um, and really, it's for, for us, I think it's looking at American democracy through a lens of people of color and their experiences by uh, dealing with this. We're going to have partly legal aspect of what happened with the um, Rego collection. We're also going to be showing some of the um, organizing and activation, as well as um, um, engagement with social media and other means to, to uh, engage the community. And then finally, sort of the effects that the community, the efforts that they did, and how that affected the work of a museum. Um, and so ultimately, I think what this will show is the um, sort of these ideas of or skills of democracy that we have at the museum when we work with a program called the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy, which was started by Senator Inoue at the Japanese American National Museum. Um, and that is the skills of participation, collaboration, research, and critical thinking. So to imbue, I think what's going to happen here is you'll see a lot of that occurring through all their work. Um, so with that, I'm going to introduce my panelists. So first one is Nancy Ukai, it's hard to read, so I'll say it, is a writer and researcher based in Berkeley, California. She helped lead a protest against the Rigo auction of Eden artifacts in 2015 and began to research the provenance of the artifacts in order to show their historical and biographical importance. Even though the auction was stopped, when it was received, it had no history, no log, no journals, nothing. It was just objects. Um, she is project director of a web-based initiative, 50 Objects, Stories of the American-Japanese Incarceration. The project explores personal histories behind 50 curated objects. Um, our other panelists on the end of the table, Shirley Ann Higuchi, is the daughter of two former prisoners of World War II American concentration camps and is currently the board chair of the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation. Heart Mountain is one of the 10 major concentration camps. That one specifically is in Wyoming. She is a past president of the DC Bar. She is um, the associate executive director of the legal and regulatory affairs for the American Psychological Association. Um, she has written several columns for national publications, including USA Today, about the Japanese American, American incarceration. Myself, I am a curator, program developer, art director, and VP of exhibitions at the Japanese American National Museum. Um, I have 25 years of ex more than 25 years 
of, of experiencing developing exhibitions with a focus primarily on audience engagement and education. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Shirley. To the first slide, and um, and I don't need the PowerPoint to just give this brief introduction. So this is our museum at the Heart Mountain uh, site, and just to give you a little bit of background, because I think it'll give a broader perspective in terms of the storyline, is that both of my parents met as children um, at Heart Mountain. Uh, they did have the prison camp there. My my father was a farm boy from San Jose. And my mother was a city girl from San Francisco. Um, and they were both like only 10 or 11 years old at the time. And they spent three years of their childhood uh, in a prison camp. And so when we think about power of place, um, we feel that having the museum there with the barrack style really sort of signif signif signifies and captures sort of the essence of what we're trying to promote. And I've got to say, uh, when the incarcerees return, and even non-incarcerees and their children, literally tears crying. And we just had our pilgrimage um, at the end of July. We gave an award to Tom Brokaw. He was moved to tears um, on the stage. Secretary Norman Netta, who's also the chair of JANUM and was incarcerated with my parents as kids, was moved to tears. And Judge Lance Ito from the O.J. Simpson trial um, whose parents were incarcerated and his mother recently died, he was moved to tears. And it was really the first time that I wasn't crying, because I've been crying for the last 10 years. And looking at them, I realized, what do you do when you have a group of men crying and you're the woman and you're not crying? And it really made me realize that we show grief in different stages, but they were all moved, I think, at some time during this process um, by the site, and I don't think this this photo does justice to it, but um, Heart Mountain is a place of, of, of spirits. Um, it's considered sacred ground, um, and it was land that was taken away from the Glenco Indians, so it has triple, double kind of significance in terms of power place. But anyways, just to give you some perspective, and the reason why um, there's such a commitment here is the Nisei, my parents, and Secretary Norman Mineta, they never talked about their incarceration experience. I don't know how much people, who knows about the Japanese-American incarceration? Well, you're an obviously educated audience, but a lot of people don't. And I think, especially me growing up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where there were no other Asians, um, my parents never talked about it. They moved ahead, they moved ahead. But as folks know that when you suffer a trauma and you don't verbalize it, um, it's, it's really easy to allow those feelings to sort of come out later on, and that's sort of what happened, um, I think, in my instance and my family's instance. My mother had died in 2005 of pancreatic cancer, and on her deathbed, um, she said that she wanted her memorial money to go to Heart Mountain. And her children were completely stunned by it because we never really heard about Heart Mountain. We always thought that, you know, Heart Mountain was a place of love and a camp and all this other thing. And then we had learned that um, essentially um, she had sent anonymously um, close to $100,000 without her children knowing it, dreaming of something being built there. And that's kind of, I took over the baton after she died. I took over a board seat. 
um, and I was uh, elected chair in 2008, and after she died and after time passed in 2011, this is what was built at the power place. So um, just wanted to share that background just so you, you guys knew a little bit more of the story. <clears throat> okay, so when we're talking about the Eaton public auction, there's a little background to this. Um, in 1945, when the camps were closing, um, this, this um, gentleman, Eaton, um, uh, really was interested in acquiring uh, many of the artifacts there. Um, our legal claim with this really was focused on the artifacts that were given to Eaton as um, somewhat of a gift, but it was a conditional gift. In other words, from a legal perspective, if somebody gives you something and says, I want you to use this for X, if you don't fulfill that promise, then essentially they breached the agreement. And that's what we went on. Um, as Nancy noted in her research to me yesterday, I mean, obviously there were some individuals that sold their artifacts. Some were just taken by Eaton. But in this instance, um, we were focused legally on the ones that were given with a condition in that, in that, uh, that gift. So that what happened in 1962, after Eaton published this book, Beauty Behind Barbed Wire, um, the collection passed to his daughter. So that makes sense, I mean, except for the fact he never had the public display. And then what happened in 1990, we see a series of events where um, uh, there was a fire and uh, the Eaton daughter had left it to the next door neighbor who did repairs of her house. From, from a legal perspective at that point, we sort of, thought the succession of the artifacts was not really appropriate and raised some eyebrows. Um, and then what happened is that contractor, Thomas Ryan, died in 2008, and he left it to his son. So now it even the succession plan is even a little bit more troubling. Um, and then in 2015, the son approaches Rego Arts, and he wanted to auction his father's estate, which contained a lot of the artwork that Hart Mountain Foundation was very much interested in. Um, then we move on uh, to March 2015. Uh, there, there was a New York Times article that alerted everyone to this planned public auction. And then what happened immediately, because we were sort of embroiled in the idea that we felt that much of the artwork needed to be at Heart Mountain, especially the Estelle Ishigo paintings, which is a story about an artist who was um, white, Caucasian, who followed her Japanese-American husband into the camp. So the fact that she painted, you know, about her experience being incarcerated at Heart Mountain, we really felt that there was a moral obligation to have some of that artwork um, at our site. Um, Nancy will speak more about this. Um, it was really helpful to get the media. Everyone knows, you know, lawsuits are great, but it always helps to have sort of the social media and the publicity to get the public really ginned up. And our argument was to sort of go in and say, hey, look, this artwork's only valued at $26,000. We will offer you $50,000 in cash. And I was able to raise that money from my board members, some of them who were actually former prisoners, including my father. So they were um, okay. My dad said, why are you offering 50 if it's only worth 26? I said, because I want to make an offer they can't refuse which kind of worked because psychologically and administratively, it, we sort of exhausted every remedy before we hired a law firm um, to prepare papers to file an injunction. So that was sort of the legal process leading up to the cancellation of the public auction. 
and then Jan, um, um, under Clement's leadership, as well as the new CEO's leadership, um, acquired the, the Eaton collection for the benefit of the public. So you actually fulfilled Alan Eaton's... <laughs> Alan Eaton's um, wish, really, I mean, his original wish when the incarceries donated the hour group was public display. And so um, as we move forward with all of this, um, we negotiated uh, very productively with Janum. And um, there, there was a new CEO that came in that we've been working with. And on January 7th, um, we were able to, um, it opens at Janum, the Japanese American National Museum. And then since then, it's been traveling around and we have the benefit of that artwork now displayed at Heart Mountain. These are just, this is just sort of the court papers to give you a sense of, of, from a legal perspective, what something like this looks like. The Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation felt it had standing because we had former incarcerees that were there. And our association and foundation is toward the benefit of the public. And we have a vested interest in the artwork that is out there. So the major points is that we focused on uh, preserving the artwork for exhibition, and this wish was never fulfilled. And um, he did hope to circulate this, um, this artwork throughout the country, and we viewed that as a promise that was not fulfilled. So as we go back with the resolution uh, of this matter, the artwork sale was canceled on April 15th. Janum purchased the artwork and worked with Heart Mound to ensure access. And this was kind of a private sale at this point. It wasn't public. It was a private sale that was sort of um, politically and legally sort of forced towards Janum to play the role as a representative. And then in May 2018, as I mentioned, this exhibit, the Ishigo exhibit, has opened up for the benefit of the public. So what happened since then is that we worked with a memorandum of understanding uh, between Heart Mountain and Janum, and this sort of describes um, what the permanent exhibit will, will do, um, not only with Janum, but sort of what it will do in the next several months, um, in the next several years leading up to 2024. And um, we hope that this loan agreement and our very strong relationship with the Japanese American National Museum will continue and um, we hope to continue exhibit um, other works uh, of Estelle Ishigo in the future. So this is the, the uh, flyer and the, the uh, program that we had that came out of the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation uh, talking about the special display that was arranged through Janum. And then this is one of her beautiful artworks, um, the swimming hole where the Japanese American children used to play during the summertime. Um, and it really exhibits more than just this scene. It really exhibits also the story of how um, a young Japanese-American boy actually drowned in that, that pool. So we have a lot of history and, and archives that we're digging in with respect to the subject matters that were covered in the artwork. And this continues on to show a little bit more of the artwork and the exhibit opening that we had at Heart Mountain. 
The uh, title of the exhibit was The Mountain Was Our Secret, Works by Estelle Ishigo. And what she really was able to do is not only capture um, um, some of the better fun times of what happened during that imprisonment, but some of the more darker and more somber um, experiences. And she even went of, as far as uh, painting um, um, descriptions of like children and women actually using the, I don't even know how to say it, like it's just an, it just was an open bathroom. They didn't have partitions, there was no privacy. Um, everything was really shoddily put together, but a lot of despair as well, which uh, really makes the artwork really invaluable because it really tells you know, so much more about what happened there than, than most people really realize. So she really played the role of, of really um, a recorder of, of what had happened there. And um, you know, if, if you think back, when they took pictures at the camp and photographs of the camp, a lot of it was taken by the War Relocation Authority. So they're opposed, you know, one of the things that really bothers me about some of the photographs that were taken by the military, sometimes there'd be pictures of Japanese Americans smiling at the camera. Well, culturally, Japanese Americans smile when a camera comes up. I don't, I don't know if you've, you know that, but everyone smiles. And so as a result, I think it gave sort of a false impression that everyone was a little happier there than um, they really were. Um, this is actually part of the exhibit um, that we had, and um, that's actually a photograph of Hart Mountain, the original barracks. If you could tell in the upper, I was sort of giving an update with some of our guests that had showed up. But the two individuals that are actually looking at the exhibit um, that was shared by Janum are, uh, I think one of them is was a former incarcerate. Um, that was looking at the artwork. And, and what's really amazing about this experience is that the Nisei that are still alive in their 80s and 90s, they all remember Estelle, you know, because she was the only Caucasian that was there. And she also played in the orchestra. So, you know, to be able to actually have sort of live subjects who say, I remember when Estelle did this, I remember when Estelle did that. Um, it really um, is a really interesting feeling that, that you could come full circle with her work. And by the way, her ashes are scattered on the top of Heart Mountain because one of the incarcerees with a band of other incarcerees, um, they found her um, uh, suffering from gangrene. Her legs were amputated in a, um, a really uh, dilapidated apartment building in LA. And the Japanese Americans actually rescued her and got her put into a nursing home. And one of her wishes was to ask one of the incarcerees to scatter her, her ashes on Heart Mountain. Here's another um, um, uh, uh, portrait of, of an or artwork of some of the workers at Heart Mountain harvesting vegetables. Um, one of the things that Heart Mountain is really known for is their agricultural um, significance. Um, they were able to turn all the dust land and really um, um, fruitful crops, and we actually were able to get the original root cellar, which, by the way, is probably like three or four times bigger than this room, donated to us by one of the local farmers. And we just got a grant uh, from the National Park Service and individual donors where we're going to restore the original root cellar so people could actually go in there and we'll have exhibits, but it'll be an extension of our museum. So what we're really working on is something similar to Bletchley Park. I don't know if anyone's been to that museum or that, those grounds, I should say. But we're trying to recreate some of the original buildings and the original structures so when people come into the site, they feel that they're 
actually in the Heart Mountain camp. Um, this is one of the um, things that we're really, really proud of. Uh, we just learned uh, that we have acquired the copyright to reprint Estelle Ishigo's Lone Heart Mountain book. She actually published a book uh, before she died, and it has some of her uh, sketchings and descriptions and her feelings about what she went through. Um, and we will do like a afterward prologue after that to sort of describe all the events that happened after she uh, wrote this book, and that includes her ashes being scattered on Heart Mountain. And I just have a list of sources. Um, if anyone is interested, I could forward you this PowerPoint. And that is it for my presentation. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for coming today. My name is Nancy Ukai. I'm from Berkeley, California. And um, like Shirley, my family members were also taken from their homes in Oakland and Berkeley, um, a dozen of them, my grandparents, my parents, my aunts, uncles, and um, went first to a racetrack south of the San Francisco area, and then 800 miles away to Utah, where they spent three years in prison. So I called my... Um, presentation today, we didn't wait because the theme of the conference, as you know, is what are we waiting for? A grassroots protest rouses community awareness and helps stop an auction. So where Shirley talked about the legal um, injunction, which was so important to stopping it and really, I believe, stopped Rego from selling these things, um, I'll be talking about the, the grassroots protests that took place through social media. But first, I want to talk about um, a photograph that perhaps you know about. It's an 1850 daguerreotype of someone named Renty, who was an enslaved man in South Carolina. And this photo was commissioned in 1850 by a Harvard biologist named Louis Agassiz. And Renty and his daughter Delia were forced to strip naked and be photographed as evidence of this um, professor's theory of polygenism which argued that the races were created, different races were created differently and separately. So um, it's been in the archives of, I believe, the Peabody Museum and Harvard, and they used it in conferences, on banners, in books. So this book is for sale for um, $40. It's called From Sight, S-I-T-E, to Sight, S-I-G-H-T. And what's happened recently, and perhaps you know about this, is that Tamara Lanier, <coughs> who always knew of an ancestor named Papa Renti and has done the genealogy and says, this, I'm the great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Renti, has sued the university um, for unauthorized use of the image or photo for advertising and sued for recovery of personal property and also reparations, among other things. And now recently what's happened is Agassi's descendants, who actually are in Oakland, one of them at least, have joined her, the great-great-great-granddaughter, um, in demanding that the university accede to the demands. And one of them said, do we think that Renty and Delia consented to be part of a project to justify their own enslavement? So I'm showing this daguerreotype because um, of an image that was going to be sold on the auction block under what I think are analogous conditions. 
um, and that's in the Rego auction that's the topic of our workshop today. So this photograph of Bob Koneko when he was four years old was taken in 1942 behind barbed wire under guard towers with machine guns, but it became the poster kind of uh, significant image to advertise this auction in 2015. Um, it turns out, I did some research, he lives in Berkeley. He lives a mile away from me. <laughs> so I went to his house, I rang the doorbell, and um, his wife opened the door, she was on the phone, and she said, I'll give you a cell. So I called him up and I met him. And um, he knew about the photograph, he knew that it was going to be sold, and then he told me his story. And I also met his mother, who is 101 year old, and when I showed her a map, her finger went right to the barrack where they were incarcerated. And so um, the real story behind this cute picture of him wearing um, a headdress with cornflake made out of um, Wheaties boxes are that you know they were sleeping in barracks, the children and the families all crammed together. And in the case of his family, there was a period in March 1942 when if you had the ability or the ambition to get out of California, everybody knew that the camps were coming, you could leave. Most people didn't have friends. They were worried about terrorism and violence and you know, just going to a place where they didn't have a job and a place to live. But that family packed up all their belongings in Berkeley, got in a truck, drove to the Sacramento area, which was where the, beyond the dividing line where people thought the camps, the dividing line was going to be. Um, Mrs. Koneko was pregnant. And um, they ended up sleeping in a tent on some friend's property. She delivered her baby in the tent on the property. And then eventually, the entire state of California became off limits. And so the family ended up moved to Tule Lake Camp. And that's where that photograph was taken. So meanwhile, his photograph became, was published in Alan Eaton's book in 1952. Um, it was the sort of introductory photograph in the catalog for the auction. And then it also ended up in the New York Times on the arts page after the auction was canceled. And so I just want us to kind of think about who has the right to not only um, to, to, to own these objects. In this case, it's a government photograph, so it's owned by the National Archives, our government, and it's, anyone can use it. Um, but it helps us think about what is the real story. These are propaganda photos, and how are they being used? In this case, it was going to be sold by, um, the, the print was going to be sold by the, the Rago auctioneer. So just to, everybody here raise their hands when Clement asked earlier if people were familiar with this history, but um, I'll just briefly say that, as you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19th, 1942, which um, paved the way for the removal and exile, basically a cleansing of all Japanese Americans from the West Coast. 120,000 people were incarcerated. Two-thirds were U.S. citizens, like my parents. Um, the remaining third were immigrants, but because of race, they were denied the ability to become naturalized. And then one-third were children. Um, and so people had very little time to pack things, and a lot of things were lost, buried, burned, just... Um, no longer have them. And people were moved from their farms and from cities. It was a big haste to, um, to, to leave. And there were 10 camps, um, permanent camps in the inland that most people might have heard about. But in fact, and they were in these states, California, Idaho, Wyoming, um, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and Arkansas. But in fact, um, when you count all of the military camps, the Department of Justice camps, and different places where people were kept. There are nearly 70 
um, sites of detention. So that's just a little background. Um, so then what happens 70 years later after the camps closed, on the New York Times on March 5th in the arts blog, there was a article, Arts of Internment Camps will head to auction. And um, I know that my response, I was, I was with a friend and he said, hey, you might be interested in this. And he handed me uh, the actual newspaper. And I went, oh, auction, art, hmm, this is interesting. What does that mean? Um, however, there was no... Uh, indication of what was going to be sold, but when you read the description, you know, they showed a little painting, and they said, oh, nameplates, and so we're thinking, what could that be? Because many people have objects from the past in their house, and sometimes they're stored in attics and basements and boxes. Um, David Rago, who um, Shirley mentioned, is based in Lambertville, New Jersey. You may have seen him on Antiques Roadshow. He's a host. I used to live in New Jersey, and I actually have bought a chair from him. <laughs> so that was kind of alarming. Um, and what it, was he selling? As Shirley mentioned, he had acquired uh, many artifacts because he went to five camps before they closed in 1945. He was working for the Russell Sage Foundation in New York City at the time, and he was a famous scholar of um, immigrant art, and he was very sympathetic to the plight of people imprisoned by their own country without due process. At any rate, he went around, he collected things, things were given to him, it seems like he bought things for a very modest sum, and some things were taken off the barracks, such as the nameplates. Um, he was the age of many of the immigrants, um, 18, born in 1878, died in 1962. So in his book, which he published 10 years on the anniversary of the executive order in 1952, he wrote in the preface, people offered to give me things to the point of embarrassment, but not to sell them. And when many of us read that, it was like, oh, I mean, he knew that they shouldn't be sold, but his descendants passed them on to the contractor who then decided to sell them to the highest bidder. But when the... Um, catalog actually went online, that's when you could see what was going to be sold. And it was quite shocking. This is um, the digital version of the catalog, which shows that there were 24 lots, and they were from the Alan Hendershot Eaton collection. There are approximately 450, 450 items, but two-thirds were photographs, government photographs, as well as privately taken photographs. And there was, I must say, kind of a shock at seeing um, our cultural heritage on an auction block numbered with a price tag and you know up for sale to the highest bidder. So meanwhile, most people, you know, other than the New York Times art blog and people in the community art community, the average person wouldn't have known about it. Since I had read about it, I started um, writing to a few friends who were in California. And so this is some of our email exchange, which I dug up the other day. And I wrote to Barbara and Sasky, my friends, on March 17th, so 12 days after the um, New York Times. Hey, Barbara and Sotsky, you may know this already, but here's the article. The auction catalog goes online on March 30th. Apparently, some works were given to Eaton, so it's a shame that these weren't returned to the community to go to museums, Nancy. Then the auction catalog goes online, and people can see pictures and prices and so on and so forth. They have a lowest you know, offering bid. And um, Sotsky said, it feels like an abomination that these historic treasures are on the auction block. And I said um, the next day, how is this different from profiting off of from slave objects or Holocaust artifacts? And then um, Barbara Takei said, oh my gosh, she said, I just saw a photograph of my mother-in-law. I'm stiflingly the impulse to bid on it. She said, so it's been at least a month since the New York Times article came out, and we're still talking among ourselves now what to do. So 
um, about 10 people in the Bay Area had a meeting because, you know, art gets sold at auction, and some of these items were artworks, so is that a bad thing, and, you know, should we protest that? And yet this feels different because people were taken from their homes, and the government apologized, and so on and so forth. So after a few hours of talking about this, we thought, if nobody, if we don't say anything, nobody else will, so we better do something. And um, the idea was to write a community letter and have politicians and famous you know, community people sign it in a plea to the auctioneer and also have a digital petition. And then the third idea, which we didn't actually thought was about third in rank, was to have a Facebook page. So um, one week before the auction and one week after our meeting, we launched a Facebook page, which we decided to call Japanese American History Not For Sale. And what we wanted to do was educate people in our community about what is an auction, what's for sale, why is this wrong? Because just like us, people would look at this and think, well, auctions are real things, and isn't this honoring our heritage? Well, no, because this should be have, have be out there for educational purposes, and it's we viewed it as a form of exploitation. So anyway, these are some of the things that were in the catalog. A chair, it was called a camp dining chair. Um, nameplates, which were particularly poignant, but also a good starting point for research because there are names on them. And just to show you an example of a barrack with a nameplate on it. And so, you know, I think I view nameplates myself as a way for people to reclaim their personhood because people were assigned numbers. And the barracks were so uniform, someone likened finding your barrack as looking for your car in a parking lot where all the cars are the same color. So people try to personalize their barracks. And then these are some of the paintings which um, Shirley talked about by Estelle Ishigo, who said, actually, I like my black and white sketches better because the color makes everything look too pretty. So on the Facebook page, we always, um, and I was part of the, I actually ended up being the administrator because when we set it up, we set it up in a way that it couldn't be a community page. So for better or for worse, um, I was the person who was getting feedback and content from people and posting it. So what we did was we tried to post images of things for sale and then gather comments from the community. So um, a Sacramento Buddhist priest wrote, for example, about one of these things. The drawings, paintings, photographs, and crowns created by those of Japanese ancestry imprisoned during World War II are not pieces of art meant to decorate a private collection. They are deep and quiet expressions of the hope and despair felt by a people enduring the trauma of racism, hatred, and fear. What you are planning to sell should be part of our shared social conscience and not viewed as simply art for display. And then on the right-hand side is a photograph of um, a young man who became an artist later and became so poor he was homeless on the streets of New York City and um, was selling his art on the street. His relative wrote, I was shocked and appalled, to say the least, in seeing my cousin Jimmy Tsutomu Midikitani's photo up for sale in an auction. And Jimmy has endured more adversity than most human beings could imagine, not only with the injustice of our incarceration in American concentration camps, but also the struggle for validation as an American citizen. He was homeless for years in the streets of New York, living off the sale of his artwork. Do not commit this travesty of cheapening and pimping memories of our cherished family memories and artwork, which is created to survive the isolation and humiliation of the camp experience. Janice Mirikitani, who was, um, the, is, was the po poet laureate of, of, um, of San Francisco. Um, and then we started a, a change.org petition 
And interestingly enough, uh, well, we got 7,000 signers in seven days, so it was quite amazing to watch it, the, the things come in about at the rate of about one a minute. And um, what happened was the petition became this outlet for people to sign their name, but also so many people, there were thousands of comments, and they became these personal testimonies. So one person wrote, my aunt's picture is one of the items up for auction. They should be donated to a museum. My parents lost everything they owned and worked for. They died never speaking of their imprisonment because they wanted to forget and put it behind them. The people who lived through this may not be around much longer, and this will help keep their story alive. To sell it to the highest bidder means you are allowing parts of history to be separated and hidden away. Um, I talked to a person at the change.org petition, and they actually said, one of them said, this was my favorite petition ever because you were so effective, and they were very moved by the response. Something else that happened was that strangers started making memes, stop Rego, and, you know, and we're like, what's that? I mean, I, I didn't even know what a meme was. Um, this guy said, made, you know, took that um, beer commercial, I don't always sell historical items at auction, but when I do, I make sure it exploits the suffering of U.S. concentration camp survivors for profit. Um, to Rego auctions, I am worth $800. Um, so basically, uh, it became this, in one week, there became this national um, grassroots uprising, and the we were very much helped also by the Sacramento Bee, the New York Times, the LA Times, the mainstream media jumped on this, which drove more people to our page. And in the end, um, George Takei was negotiating with Rago, and Rago said, oh, George Takei is going to mediate. We're going to take everything off for sale. I believe, and mo most people believe it was the lawsuit that um, made him change his mind. Um, so Hart Mountain Wyoming Foundation legal work was invaluable. Um, and, you know, we were just really astonished that just upstart thing that just kind of caught fire actually resulted in the items being taken off the, the auction block and eventually they ended up in the collection of the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. So I'm just going to give um, a few examples of how we're now tracing the provenance of these things that um, we're going to be sold and separated, but now we're able to do some research and find the stories behind them. So this particular wooden carving was made out of a citrus crate. And on the left-hand side, the one in black and white, shows the photograph as it was depicted in the 1952 book that Alan Eaton created, the very first book on camp artifacts. And the second picture shows the, food, the carving shown in the museum um, in 2015. Now, um, Eaton, in his book, says Izami Fujita. He's got one spelling wrong, but I think this is, I think a guy named Fujita is the one who made it. And so that's where we started. Like, okay, who's Fujita? I went to the National Archives. I got his file. Then what happened was, um, oops, let's see if I can do this. Um, other started to pop up. And people would say, oh, I know one, or they'd see it. They'd go, oh, there's one in San Jose. My family has one. There's one in Oregon. There's one in, you know. And so what happened was um, one thing led to another, and we found uh, six. Actually, now it's grown to eight, because Clement just told me of another one this morning, in four different states, in four different collections. And, um, and now we're beginning to talk with the families, some of whom know a lot about the carving and others who don't. Um, the one, number four one, there is no provenance information. 
And so this is the one that sort of got us going. And um, one of the things we're looking at is not only the human stories, but also the material object itself. And in this case, this bird was created by this man who actually was an immigrant. He was a gardener, although he arrived in the United States in the teens, 19, I forget, 15, to buy movies for his sister's movie chain house in Fukuoka, Japan. <laughs> he couldn't find employment doing that, so he ended up becoming a gardener, and he was also the head of the Buddhist Association. He carved this in and um, post in Arizona, and he never carved again after he got out of camp. This is a picture of him and his family in front of the barrack. His wife was an invalid, so although she's sitting here in a chair, she was in bed in the barrack the whole time, and Cookie, his daughter in the blue, talks about how she would go to the mess hall and bring her mother meals. And now they have their father's carvings, and they said, this is all that we have left. We're really happy to know that the stories are coming out. Um, in addition, we're beginning to look at the kinds of tools that were used, makeshift tools, um, how people gathered together in classes. And what's interesting is that a carving with the tracing on it, but which is only partially finished, came out, I don't want to say of the woodwork, um, in, in, in Sonoma. And it's so funny because this woman said, it was my father-in-law's, it was in the back of a closet. Her, her children are in construction. And she said, I was going to have them finish it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm so glad you didn't, because obviously we can get information from the unfinished carving. So what are some of the things that have come out of this for us? Um, for me personally, I became super interested in how artifacts, and you as museum professionals know this, can be used to excavate human stories, and particularly in the Japanese-American community where there's been such shame and humiliation and um, not wanting to think about a bad time when maybe you lost everything you'd worked for, you saw your parents suffer, there were suicides, there were marriage dissolution, you know. Um, these artifacts became a way to get a voice out about the history. So I applied for a National Park Service grant and with a small production team, we have a website and I've given some of you our business card which looks at this World War II history through a curated collection of 50 artifacts. Not all of them are crafts, um, but we, we want to kind of make these material things come alive. Another concrete thing that came out of it was that um, this pair of Bibles was um, put on private sale by Swan Auction Galleries in New York. And um, they were priced at $80,000. And they were one of them was finished in the post in Arizona camp by a man who was um, in the Salvation Army. And the only reason we knew of their sale was because one of the persons in this public institution who knew it, who helped with the protest called and emailed me and said, this is wrong. I think this is very similar to stopping the auction, and we should try and contact the family because in the Bible were all these baptismal records so you could read everybody's name. So I contacted the family. And they said, oh, my gosh, we thought these Bibles were in the family. We, we had Sunday school with, you know, our grandpa Kitaji. Um, how did they get out into um, the public market? And it turns out that somebody found them in a recycling area in San Francisco. Um, it's not really clear how they ended up there, but at any rate, um, when you look at them, this 
Kitaji wrote in the most minuscule handwriting and with these amazing illustrations every single page of these Bibles, or a lot, because he wanted to preach to his flock and he was giving his own interpretation of all kinds of things. And um, basically within three days the family, 30 people, um, signed a letter to the auctioneer and I think they were very aware of the Rego auction, and, and they ended up doing a private transaction. It's now in a, the um, Bibles are now in a vault at Stanford University <laughs> in the Hoover Institute. So they went from really being trash to, you know, now being in a vault. And this photograph here shows Mr. Kitaji in 1944, and it says completion of, number, of one of the Bibles. And then the person on the right is one of the descendants who helped save it. So I think in addition to um, raising the question, who were the rightful owners of artifacts of oppression? How do we handle these things? How do we preserve the story when, in our case, with the Japanese-American history, many people are dying and we're just losing the ability to get those stories? Um, is It's made us treasure these things and take a look at this history, even now, as I personally feel, these same kinds of camps which dehumanize and racialize and victimize people of color and put them in camps is happening now. And we, these are some of the success stories. Um, this is Sharon Honda with a nameplate made by her grandfather, which you know she didn't know about. This is Mitch Homa with the chair that um, Clement will talk about, which was um, really, Eaton loved that one. Here's Mr. Kaneko. Um, very sadly, two weeks after our team interviewed him, he died of a heart attack. Um, so his mother is still alive and very healthy, age 101, but he passed away soon after our interview. Um, and then this woman, Mrs. Nakamura here, is holding um, an embroidery she did under the tutelage of this uh, teacher who was in the black and white who was featured in um, the book, and then the nameplate um, on the bottom right-hand corner, which Clement will talk about. So now the museum has a program called Can You Help Identify? And the point is to try and um, pull the objects and the people together. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Shirley and, and Nancy. Um, and you can, I, I'm always amazed at the sort of leadership that these two provided. Um, I had not known of them before this whole thing happened, um, but it's, for me, it's a sense of awe, <laughs> the amount of work that they do as volunteers. It's not like they're getting paid to do this work or anything. It's, it comes from the heart and it's, it's from passion. And so, my work is really guided by their efforts. Um, and so what I'm going to talk about a little is after, once the museum was able to get this collection and knowing sort of its background here, what were we going to do with this collection? And how were we going to um, follow in sort of the work that they have done? So what I, what I am doing now currently is I'm traveling the collection to different venues where we feel there are critical masses of Japanese Americans um, still surviving and their families to try and crowdsource as much as possible any of the data that was in this collection. Because as they mentioned, when it came to us, they were in cardboard boxes and there was no, no history. Like the nameplates had the name, had the name, literally had the name, that's it. Um, so it was very difficult. Um, and then when I travel, I, I do a little intro covering much of what they had mentioned 
um, sort of the camps that he visited, that he was a craft and folk, folk and craft art specialist, um, and he just embraced the sort of Japanese American experience because of it is almost like common people. A lot of those wood plates that you looked at, they were not done by professionals. Um, they were be, being done by people who had an immense amount of time because their, their livelihoods were all stopped. They were thrown into camps, and now what were they going to do? They were all productive members prior, now they were left with nothing. And so these, these craft classes were ways of people where people would come together, they would at least have their camaraderie. They had to make a lot of the tools. Nancy had a picture of that one uh, knife that had like tape all over it. There were no tools at the time, so the blacksmith, every camp had to have a blacksmith because if metal broke, they had to, someone had to fix it, like a carpentry shop too. Um, and those tools became, you know, like old springs from a car and just sharpened. And then they had to work together because there was only like two, 10 tools. They had to sit together and share while they were doing the work. Um, this is just a picture of Raigo. We always have to mention that because it's an important aspect of how this actually came to be. Eva Kahn wrote the article in the New York Times. And central to the whole battle, I feel, is the Thule Bay Committee and the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation. It was they're working together with an all-camp consortium as well um, to really talk about this on a larger scale, to have a national impact. But really, the, the sort of nuts and bolts really came from Heart Mountain and, and the Bay Area. And this is just sort of illustrates sort of a whirlwind of different things and how it, how it all came to be. Um, so with that, we go into the... Um, yeah. I think I covered everything. I mean, they covered a lot, so I don't have to. I don't have to reiterate it. Um, but again, just Central Heart Mountain, Wyoming, and Tule Lake Committee, with Nancy Ukai. Um, so now, now, one of the things that I think is important for the museum is to kind of identify its role in this whole situation. As uh, other panels are also discussing, the museums cannot always be like purely activist organizations are, they have donor bases that are very large and they can't be um, seen doing marches or stuff like that. But the museums do have special skills and I think that is one of the benefits of having a museum to care for the collection. And so we have to look at what are, what are our strengths. It's our research, it's our resource materials, and it's our ability to care for these objects. And so this is one of the objects in the collections. It's a Japanese nameplate. It was um, carved. It's only about this big, about eight inches. It's a very tiny little thing. Um, and it took us a while to get translated because many people today, it, it's written in older Japanese and it's very stylized. So it's, you know, it's mimicking brush strokes. So it's not like a printed thing. It's very, but we eventually got it translated and it says Muro Yoshihide. I can't read Japanese, but <laughs> I know what it says. And so, again, through our research, we go through camp database records. We find that there's only one Muro, and we see here that his first name was Jack. So when we put it into our databases, we find that we've already done an oral history of Jack Muro. Um, he's the underground photographer of Omachi. While photography was banned or contraband for Japanese Americans, in a few months, the camp administrators realized these people are not spies. Like they said, that sometimes they're elder women who can't even walk, you know? It was just just by nature of your ancestry, had nothing to do with your ability or anything. Just if you had a, a drop of Japanese blood, you would have been put in camp. 
but they allowed them to order cameras and stuff from Sears catalogs. And he actually dug a hole underneath his bed <laughs> to create a dark room. And he, we have an, all his collection of photographs. But we also realized he's still alive. And then so what we did was, oops, sorry. My finger's too fast. We were able to visit him, because he's still alive, in um, a retirement home about five blocks from the Japanese American National Museum. And we're, we're just showing him the nameplate here. I just want you to look at this. If that's something that you recognize. No, so I, oh. Oh, that's my mirror. What is, what is, what about here? Well, I haven't done it for a long time, but that looks like my name. That's great. Okay, that looks like your name? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yoshihide, isn't it? Yeah. Do you remember that? No. I don't. So do you remember your father? Did he used to cut a lot of wood things? Yeah, he did, but I was down in the cellar with my photograph, and he's up, I don't know what he was, he was in the police department, and they got nothing else to do. They do that at the, at the station, I guess, not at the apartment. Like, why do you think he made this? I don't know. Looks like a, there's a nail hook on it, maybe for hanging over your bed or something. He never showed it to me or any. And Did I, your father used to have a lot of wood hanging inside the barrack? Uh, no, he had a, uh, they had a, what do you call it, craft uh, place where you do the craft. I think he left everything there. He never left. In the hole, I mean, uh, in the hole, in the barrack. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember what block or what barrack that was where they kept everything? No, I have no idea. Maybe it was at the police department. Oh, okay. No other in my family or close friend did that kind of stuff. So it had to be. So my dad must have done it. I think that's a, that's what we wanted to confirm. So, now when we put it back in the museum, we know who made this. Oh. Before then, it was a mystery. So there, there's a little story in the Eaton book um, where he talks about trying to find the, trying to find these plates. And people kept telling uh, Eaton about this person, Miss Hall. And he was looking for this teacher going, where, where is Miss, do you know Miss Hall? Do you know Miss Hall? Until finally someone said, I think they're saying mess hall. And when they went to the mess hall, again, like we were mentioning earlier, 
that's where people would congregate and they would work together and share the tools. And, and when uh, Nancy showed that plate where there were multiple plates, it's clear that someone had a template and people would find scraps of wood. You know, they say, oh, I want to do this. Oh, and then people probably said, go to the scrap pile and find a nice piece of wood without a knot, lot of knots. And then they would trace it, and then they would carve together and share techniques and um, methods on how to make those things. Um, so what we've been doing is traveling it. If you look in these pictures, you can see how we travel them. They're in little cases, and we just lift the tops off. We put them on top of tables. There's a total of eight flat ones, and then three big ones, and then two. <laughs> it's always hard to explain to these traveling venues, like, what, what does it look like? Um, but it really just pops up. Um, we're going to places, again, like critical masses. So we've been to four pilgrimages, which are events where people come to the sites of conscience, like Heart Mountain. Um, we were at Jerome Rohr, Arkansas, Heart Mountain, Wyoming, Tule Lake, California, and Minidoka, Idaho. We've been going to festivals and events. If you know the Japanese-American community, they have these annual events called Obons, or um, basically Day of the Dead for Japanese. Um, San Jose, California, Salt Lake City, Las, Las Vegas, Nevada. In Denver, Colorado, it was the Day of Remembrance. Um, again, so each one has different numbers, but Las Vegas Obon had about 3,000 people. Not all Japanese-Americans, though. <laughs> um, this is just one story um, from the most recent, um, second most recent visit to um, Arkansas. And we were able to connect the picture, which is in the Eden Collection, with a family that um, had the nameplate. And it's pretty, I'll, it explains it in the video, so I'll just show that. Initially, we were contacted by um, Lois um, Oda, and so that's Fred Shimasaki's daughter. So that's my my uh, dad's first cousin because they had gone to the very first um, Jerome Rohr pilgrimage in 2018. Um, and uh, we weren't able to go to that one, uh, but they came back with such positive feedback. And then um, on a plane flight back to California, Fred would, happened to be um, talking to Nancy Ukai, and um, the name Edetta came up because um, Fred was mentioning that his family name should be Edetta, but it's Shimasaki. And Edetta kind of rung a bell for Nancy, and she eventually, I think, sent the picture of my dad with his plaque and said, you know, I knew that Edetta sounded familiar here. Do you know this person? And it happened to be my dad, and so Fred recognized it right away. And so that is the start of the whole thing. And um, when uh, we had the Op or learned about the opportunity that there was going to be a second pilgrimage. I told Clifford that, you know, I think I want to go. So what did the K stand for? Kitaro, my uh, grandfather's 
And so that's the son. So that's Takashi Ideta, my dad, and their grandfather. And this was the family, I guess, nameplate that was on outside of the barrack. And you guys found it when you were cleaning out Grandma's house, wasn't it? It's actually a, a storeroom over at the old house, and so that was in there. <laughs> <laughs> I know you rescued it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> to me, this has a very stylized look to it. Dad had had a uh, a lot of attention to detail, and he prided himself in doing things, you know, a certain way too. One of the things that even my uncles will remember is that he was really good at drafting. And so with drafting, you have to be very precise in, you know, how you measure things out. And I remember uh, in high school doing posters for um, the uh, pep rallies, and I needed to do something big. And so he was, he was helping me curl the way that I was making my letters in that, oh, no, no, you need to measure, and here, I'll show you. And I was thinking, all I want to do is, but then it was like, okay, and, and so I really learned, you know, how that, to make things even and, you know, uh, spaced out like that. So I was really looking at it in detail a lot more and um, touching it, feeling it, um, feeling the workmanship that went into making this thing and noticing just um, the kind of, of detailing and, and love and care this this went into this. I think it's important for stories to be told. And so I think um, being able to document as much as you can when there are Niseis still alive is really important. Um, and I think too, we're just, we're not taught in schools about the internment. I think it was like a paragraph in my history book. And so like I had to go to college and to take an Asian American studies class. And that's what sparked so much, many other just curiosities I had. And um, I think too, it's just like, if you're not told these things, if people don't talk about it, you lose a big part of your history. Yeah. Out of all the kids, I was probably the person growing up that was the least interested in knowing where I came from. It's like, I'm here right now. I'm gonna just, I'm, I'm doing my thing. Like, I wanna go to Italy. I have no desire to go to Japan. I wanna learn French. I wanna do all these other different things. Like, so not interested, even remotely interested in anything to do with my culture. Um, just wildly disconnected from it. And um, when the plaque came around, and it was just like, oh, that's really cool. And then there were other things that I was going through at the time, and all of a sudden, it, seemed like a good idea to learn a bit more about where I came from. They started talking about the different perspectives and I was sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, like, that's so familiar. You know, they, these feelings that people have um, and, and different things. And, and I started realizing like, these people who have gone through these experiences, like they shaped me and who I am. And these people who came before us, like how selfless were they? Like they could have they taken that experience and framed it in a totally different way. But they chose not to. And because of that, I mean, I had the luxury of being like, I don't care about my heritage, you know? <laughs> it was like a funny thing. But it also was one of those things of like, wow, like I kind of want to know more now. Like what other stories do I carry that I don't even know? Okay, so these are the venues that we have completed over the past year and a half maybe. Um, you can see that we it's a really quick pop-up. We kind of 
fly in and sometimes we drive it ourselves in vans because it's in order to keep cost controls down. Um, and we've tried to focus a lot on the West Coast near former campsites and where again, like San Francisco, I think we did three in that whole area. Um, but also going to other places because during the war, at, you know, as Nancy mentioned, a lot of people once in camp decided to move to um, other locations or opportunities, whether it was college. Um, the last site is Seabrook Buddhist Temple in New Jersey, South New Jersey. Some of you might know that's very close to here. About 500 families moved there, 2,500 people, to work in Seabrook Farms, which took produce and froze it for gen uh, Green Giant or Libby's and stuff like that. Um, and there's still a community that exists there today. So we took the collection to their Obon Festival, where they still dance um, traditional Japanese dance for since they left from, from camp. Um, same with Chicago. In, um, there's a strong Japanese-American community there, as well as Utah. A lot of these places, it's, you don't really think there is, but there's an enclave of Japanese-Americans that still exist there. So again, we're, we've been going to all these places doing this type of work. These are some of our future targets. We're hoping to go to New York City. We have to, um, and then to do some more um, work in California because California is a big state. Um, again, going back to the strengths of what a museum does, sort of uh, we're the ones that will be able to oversee the conservation. We, we had a grant from the uh, NPS to catalog, clean, house, stabilize, conserve a lot of the artworks. Research objects, again, using technology, but also our rich archives already to connect people. Um, this ideal of shared custody, I think, is directly a result of the work of people like Nancy and uh, Shirley. Um, personally, I couldn't see how we couldn't share the work with these individuals because of their efforts to make sure that this was not sold to the public. So after the Estelle Ishigo paintings were conserved, they looked beautiful. A lot of the inmates who saw them afterwards said, wow, they look like they're painted yesterday. We, were, we put them into microclimate chambers with plexi and um, the silica gel paper inside there to keep the, the, the um, humidity stable, relative humidity. We know that LA is about 50%. Wyoming is 20%, so you're really thirsty all the time. Um, but when we sent the painting, we, so we framed them, we sent them to them, but what we do, there's a rotation that goes on, but we never actually, we leave them in Wyoming because we don't want the 2050 thing happening all the time. It's better just to leave it there. And Dakota, who's the current executive director, does a great job of, when they're not being shown, they're in crates that are dark and completely black. So, you know, it's, we feel comfortable in this long-term loan, maybe some institutions don't. I mean, in our bylaws, it says we never do loans longer than six months. But in this case, we have uh, uh, some kind of, <laughs> is this being recorded? <laughs> we, we have an exemption. You know, it's, it's already been ongoing, and so it probably will continue on, and we'll see how long. It will probably be quite a while. And, and, I, and I anticipate other organizations doing similar things because there are other works, too, from Tule Lake and other places that, again, because of what they did, it's really important that we support that. And then, and then finally, this idea of crowdsourcing data. That's what we are doing now by traveling it to all these locations in a pop-up fashion. You know, we're not trying to do month-long exhibitions. What we're really trying to do is engage a lot of these individuals who are, if you were in the military in 1942, 45, you would be like almost 100. So every second is precious in order to get this in front of them to, to participate. 
um, and even just tell tell us stories. A lot of times, like the word Nancy, the last piece I like, the video is, it was really a chain of events that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, she mentions it to Fred, who's like 95, sends the picture, picture goes to the family. They, they come to Jerome Roar the same time I went to Jerome Roar, but we didn't know we were both going. And once there, so when they said they had the nameplate, I said, what? How, do you, how did you know that this is going to, you know, it was so, it's, it's everything to me is a miracle. That's <laughs> what it seems like, so. Um, and then just to reiterate sort of what our mission is currently and how we work to um, share the Japanese-American experience is really our mission is to promote understanding and appreciation of America's cultural diversity by sharing the Japanese-American experience. So really it's about America first and then um, just sort of what our mission says. I think um, as an end result of all of the work that has been done, it's really what we look at is sort of the, the successes of everything that's sort of this all-camp consortium, which is a, a group that existed in some forms, but today, because of this work and the participation from everyone, there's a sense of collaboration and really just working together because it's no use for us to, to work in silos. It's much better when we work together um, and things get done more faster. So again, that's one of the great things that comes out of this. Um, 50 Objects website, another incredible resource. Um, understanding that our policies need to be of sympathetic to the community and their needs and sort of their um, work. The Japanese American community has really found so many different organizations and so our role really should, should be to support all of them. Um, and then this engagement of young people. I think there's always a concern that as our audience ages out and a lot of the Nisei are passing on, Nisei is second generation Japanese American, that who will carry the torch? Who will carry this story forward? And you can see is through a lot of these intergenerational conversations that they have at pilgrimages, there's the ability for those people who were in camp to share with their children, much like what happened in the, the video that we saw. Um, this, they, they, they made hard, uh, little uh, Jerome Roar pilgrimage their sort of family vacation. And it was more than a vacation. It was just this bonding experience for them with their history. And the plaque, in many ways, brought back their grandfather, who had passed away many, many years ago. So, um, so with that, um, I'd just like to open it up to questions, because we only have four, four minutes. So yes, one. So sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. No, those pictures, those pictures were just taken very quickly. But the stickers have since been removed. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we still call it the Eaton Collection. There was questions about whether we should still call it the Eaton Collection, <laughs> but we still call it the Eaton Collection. Any other questions? Yes.
Thank you. here on the East Coast to, to, to not be as familiar with California's history or, or indeed American history as, as we should be. And um, I think these stories are so important and so powerful that it's really important. I, what I'm really thinking is if our, if our president had visited mm -hmm. our counties, would we be behaving the same way towards our Well, that, that essentially when a lot of the Trump's activity started, that was my first op-ed was with USA Today, and, and the caption was, you know, Trump should visit a Japanese, you know, concentration camp. So uh, I really appreciate your, your comment and your feedback. We have another question. Yes. Well, I, I, I know we're running out of time, but I just, I, in answer to your question was what my comment was going to be is that young girl crying, you know, in some ways could have been me. You know, I mean, basically the U.S. government's plan succeeded. <laughs> we became fully assimilated. And part of that assimilation, Nisei, the quiet Americans, my parents and Nancy's parents, they didn't really talk about it much. And that was part of the healing process. So I think this whole thing about the younger generation becoming more aware and engaged really has to do a lot with the fact that we're, kind of, we're angry. I mean, we're really angry and we're kind of at the place now where um, we're angry that we are shut out of our family's history. And so I, I, I think in answer to our question, yes, I think it'll hopefully take hold. I think for, I'm not quite sure what your challenges are, but you've got to find that story in that connection. Yeah. If I can just mention that um, I was part of a pilgrimage to Crystal City, Texas in March, and because that was a Department of Justice camp for Latin Americans who were kidnapped and brought here as hostages, and also for Japanese American alien enemies. Um, at any rate, one hour away is at the country's largest detention site for women and children from Central America. So after the pilgrimage to the Japanese American camp, we took a bus and we hung 20,000 paper origami cranes on the fence as a sign of solidarity. And also um, one person who was a child in one of the camps said, I usually send these to Hiroshima, but this year I want them to go to in memory of the women and children there. So just to make a long story short, this group, it's called Sudu for solidarity, and Sudu means crane, is now planning to take 125,000 hand-folded paper cranes to Washington, D.C. and hang them on a fence in D.C. next June. And what we found is that it's the young people 
college age and young professionals who are the motor, and so many of them have said, I am the privilege now to do things that my ancestors couldn't, and I'm just really moved by their um, thoughtfulness, because I wasn't that way in college. It took me a little while, I think. So um, it's very encouraging, although I must say my own children aren't quite that. <laughs> um, well, at any rate. <laughs> that's so I think that intergenerational story is so important. And, um, and I invite you to go to Tsuru for Solidarity website. And, and I will just add to that from the museum perspective. We have found that because a lot of the survivors that live now would have been children in camp, a lot of their perspectives have, have been very, you know, their perspective were always, well, it was a kid, it was fun in camp. But really, it's through this process of working with the young people in these multi-generational conversations that a lot of the trauma is really revealed and sort of, um, I think that's been spearheaded by Satsuki Ina, which Nancy referred to earlier, um, is a scholar and a psychiatrist and just an expert in the field of that type of experience. Um, and I do think that's w another reason why the young people are becoming critically engaged. You know, they, I think they would always support the museum, but now they feel a personal investment because of what they're experiencing through these intergenerational conversations and making the story really their own. So um, I know we're out of time. So we will be here for a little while if you want to ask any questions. I'm going to ask that you please, if you can, fill out your survey forms, if you really liked it. <laughs> and then, if you didn't, then don't fill out. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, and then thank you all for coming, because like I said, I know you have a lot of stuff to do, so thank you. Oh.